everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Nick Hudson, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thank you, Rob. Glad to be here. It's great to have you. Um, this has been a little bit of a time in the making here, but I'm glad to be finally sitting down and talking to you. Uh, just by way of quick introduction, you are the chairman of Panda, which is an international multidisciplinary group analyzing issues related to COVID and the policy responses uh, across the world. Could we just start there? Um, this is a little bit outside the scope of what I normally talk about on the show, but that's a good thing. Who are you, Mr. Hudson? How did you come into this position at Panda? And what have you guys been working on at Panda? Yeah, sure, Rob. I mean, it's, uh, as much as it's out of scope for the show, this whole saga has been very much out of scope for my life. In my day job, <laughs> I'm a, a private equity investor. I run a private equity fund, enjoy it very much. And um, here I'm here in South Africa, in the, the Cape province of, of South Africa, um, and uh, always had an orientation towards data. I read a lot. I um, think very hard. I kind of enjoy the world of curiosity and intellectual endeavor. And when this COVID crisis came along, all the alarm bells went off for me. Everything, every single social 
development that I've been watching both in the, the, the two stints that I spent in the United States and time that I spent in Europe, time in South Africa, all of those social developments suddenly fused in a singularity and went kaboom in my head. And I read this thing. This is the big one. We're, uh, we're in for a doozy here. And it wasn't about the virus. In fact, very quickly, I worked out that this virus, in terms of its clinical impact, would be tiny. I was concerned about the hysteria and the social impact. Mm. And I began to speak out on social media. I'd never really been on social media before. Back then, I had a Twitter account with about two followers, one of which was my dog. And, um, you know, it was a case of just starting to reply to people and say, but are you really sure? Have you seen the data from the Diamond Princess? Have you noticed that it seemed this seems to be a disease that has negligible impact on most people in any population? You know, young and va even vaguely healthy people are not at risk here. Why are we doing all of this? And I very quickly came under attack. By, by profession, I'm an actuary. So I'm a member of a profession. And a lot of the members of that profession were, um, you know, lifting their skirts above the he their heads and running about screaming and shrieking. And um, it just, I just couldn't see the cause for it. Mm. Um, and so I read it straight away as a heavily propagandized, marketed kind of campaign. Um, I saw all the warning signs of a hysteria and a big political move being made by actors who were unclear to me at that stage. Um, and quite quickly, there coalesced a group of like-minded people here in South Africa at first, people from various professions and practices, you know, lawyer, an economist, uh, an immunologist, and another actuary. And uh, we started comparing notes and we had very similar views. We were all saying the same thing. And when, when that happens, when you meet with people who've done their own work and come to the same conclusions independently, people you didn't even know, you had no way of knowing what you were thinking. Mm -hmm. It's a really strong signal in life. And so we quite quickly formed a, an organization and uh, wrote a letter to our state president accompanied by an article that we'd put together called Quantifying the Years of Life Lost to Lockdown, which was making the simple point that we were proceeding into this lockdown thing mm -hmm. without conducting any cost-benefit analysis. And we'd run the numbers in a kind of actuarial fashion, uh, showing that there was no chance on earth that the benefits of lockdowns would see, exceed the costs. And I'm not talking about economic costs. I'm talking about costs in terms of years of life lost. Mm. So it's life for life comparison, not a life versus economy comparison. And we showed that convincingly, and it's a, an analysis which has now been repeated in multiple places around the world. We thought we were the first, but we later discovered that several governments around the world had done similar analyses, found the same result that we did, and simply buried the findings, which is very spooky. But that organization grew extremely rapidly. We became, we developed quite a big voice on social media. We started appearing on various podcasts. Our videos were viewed a lot. Uh, and then this, the censorship began. 
we realized that we were dealing with a beast that was way beyond our borders, that this needed an international kind of organization to respond to it. We didn't think that we were that organization. So we put about trying to find some kind of international group that was trying to do a similar thing, couldn't find one. So we took the decision to expand internationally and we added members all over the world, scientists from and doctors from many countries. Uh, the last time I counted, it was, which is probably more than a year ago, a year and a half ago even, there were people from 30 different countries and hundreds of members. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say diverse and multidisciplinary, I really mean it. We have all the stock standard sort of immunology, epidemiology, uh, clinical medicine people that you might expect. But we also have the data scientists, the engineers, the economists, the lawyers, actuaries and um and then a whole lot of people who are none of the above who i'm very happy to have on board who are brilliant thinkers who are able to you know shed their unique insights and perspectives and help us think about these very complex problems and the problem set that we've been grappling with has expanded from the science related things to and, and medical things into the domain of the politics mm. of the story which is actually the bigger part this needs to be read as a socio-political event, not as a medical event. Hmm. Yeah, there, there's a lot to be said there, I'm sure. Um, okay, I want to... Okay, before we get in, I have one question about what you just said, and then we'll try to move forward here. What You mentioned the data on the Diamond Princess. Hmm. I'm actually not familiar with that. I, I assume that's a cruise ship of some kind. Are you able to just give us the quick summary notes of what that is? Yeah, why, sure. Why it's relevant. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning of the epidemic, there was this story in the news. It was plastered everywhere that there was this cruise ship at sea and the deadly virus was on board and going rampant around the decks of this cruise ship. People were dying. They didn't know what to do about it. The Japanese authorities were so terrified that they weren't even prepared to allow the ship to dock. They they allowed it to draw up alongside, and that was it. And um, within a couple of weeks, the data from that ship emerged. And this is a unique opportunity for people like me. When they when you hear about this, you know, the personal tragedy aside, it's it's a diamond because it's a closed population exposed all you've got to assume all exposed to this virus by the time you know a certain percentage of the people have become sick on board and so you get a very clear picture of among the few thousand people who uh, were on board who does this virus affect and how badly what's the mortality rate for various groups of people and the picture that emerged was crystal clear the only people who died were elderly and in most cases severely comorbid, not just sick, severely comorbid people. And the young people were unscathed, completely unscathed. And when you mapped it onto the world's population and said, look, um, if we say that this is a disease that affects the elderly, uh, what's, what, what are we up against here? And it was quite clear that this is, this is a, a disease of no material clinical significance to most of the world's population. That's not to say that you should do nothing about it, because, of course, we care about elderly people and severely comorbid people. 
but it's strongly suggestive of the fact that the policy response, whatever reform it should take, should not be a uniform response across entire entire populations. Mm-hmm. So you shouldn't have had lockdowns and mandates of any sort that apply to the general population. You wanted to take an approach of protecting the vulnerable minority, which is a, an approach called focus protection, advocated by a, a group of extremely renowned epidemiologists at uh, Stanford, Harvard, and Oxford, um, who elucidated their thoughts in a document called the Great Barrington Declaration in the first few months of the epidemic. And so we immediately saw that everything that was being done was completely at odds with prior medical science and indeed with logic. It was just crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, So that ship, the Diamond Princess, was the very clear early picture that we got. The papers were available, I think it was in February already and March, two papers, mm-hmm. and they were very clear. This this was just an, 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 a non-starter amongst young people. They, they, 25% of them, I think it was, got infected. Not one of them became severely ill. And the mortality rate, I think, on a boat with several thousand people, there were maybe in the end of it all 14 or 15 deaths. And so you weren't dealing with something that was was going to decimate the world's population. Yes, there would be uh, material deaths among the frail elderly, but uh, we we so we, we at least could see what we were dealing with. And this idea that not everybody, n- nobody is safe until anybody is safe, and all those kinds of slogans that were bandied bandied about by the enormous marketing campaign that this virus benefited from were all completely false wow yeah that's so it was a very useful sample in the statistical analysis of what this virus is going to do to the larger population size and of course the way their media reported was not in the way that i just did what they said was the deadly virus is going around the boat the poor people are all going to die you know that kind of (laughs) approach and when the data came out showing that almost nobody had died, they said nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be a recurrent pattern, right? There's a lot of hysteria in the beginning, and then the data comes out later, and it's just never mentioned again, right? They just move on to the yeah. next hysterical topic. Um, okay, that's super interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, to your point earlier, this what we're going to get into today, I think, is are the political dimensions to this entire saga. Um, but I think, I guess what would be first useful for my audience, we haven't talked about this on the show, is to discuss your central scientific findings related to all of this. Um, I assume this is uh, the scientific findings of Panda itself. Like what? Yeah. What is the, uh, what is the scientific perspective on, on all of this before we get into the political? Yeah, and it's important to say here that uh, you know I'm a, a financial investor and an actuary, so I'm not reporting my own scientific findings. I'm I've become the accidental science communicator, and I, I report the collective work of an organisation that is you know from time to time involved an enormous number of people from various scientific disciplines. 
And, you know, we, we do, um, we do have a great deal of material out there. People can visit our website, pandata.org, and see uh, a substantial subset of our articles and videos and so on. But we, we, we had a go uh, not too long ago at really trying to crystallize what the sort of top 20 contrary findings were. So I'm not going to talk about the findings that are sort of consistent with the conventional narrative of COVID. Let's just concentrate quickly on the uh, 20 myths, if you like, of the, the the received COVID narrative. The first one is that the, vir the, the myth is that the virus is new. Um, it's called the novel COVID, con novel, novel coronavirus COVID-19. This is false. Um, of course, novelty is, uh, is, is not assessed in a kind of dichotomous way. It's not the case that a virus can be described as you know, 100% new or 0% new only. You are dealing with a spectrum. But COVID overlaps from a genetic perspective with very widely circulating viruses from the same family, uh, beta coronaviruses. Um, and so the human body recognizes COVID as something it's had to deal with before and upwards of 80% of any population measured actually has pre-existing immunity to COVID. And so there's a real myth created that this thing is completely new and nobody's immune to it. We all have immune naivety. This is the second myth that everyone is susceptible. Most people are not. The third myth was that the virus was deadly. So we had a new deadly virus. You know, it's not new. It's not deadly. The most comprehensive study to date revealed that the infection fatality rate for under 70s was about 0.05%. So five in 10,000 people would die. And what that statistic hides is that almost all of those people would be people with serious comorbidities and very low life expectancies. You know, for the median risk member of the population of under 70s, the infection fatality rate was less than one in 10,000, which is to say negligible. And the fourth myth was that lockdowns were effective at reducing deaths. We've had hundreds of studies now showing that lockdowns had absolutely no material benefit on in terms of COVID mortality. They've come to us in many forms. They can be within single states in the United States comparing counties that had different policies, or they can be on a truly global level comparing countries in terms of the degree to which they locked down or the duration of their lockdowns. And they also come in theoretical forms before COVID lockdowns had been shown to be things that you would expect to worsen mortality in the face of pronounced age-graduated mortality. Hmm. So there was no expectation, in fact, that they would reduce overall mortality. Hmm. The fifth myth was that the cloth masks were effective. It's a ridiculous idea. Expecting a cloth mask to stop a virus is like expecting a chain link fence to stop a handful of sand. It goes completely wrong scaling from a physical perspective. And even if it does stop droplets, those droplets are then nebulized as you exhale over the mask and the virus shoots off into the surrounding atmosphere. The sixth myth was about how the virus was transmitted. Everybody had a big song and dance about 
wiping down their shopping uh, trolleys and uh, sanitizing their hands and so on. But there's not a lot of evidence on transmission modalities, but the evidence that there is suggests that there is very little support and for this so-called droplet and fomite transmission, the idea motivating the six-foot rule, you know, the social distancing, the idea motivating the sanitizing and the face masks and the PPE, that you're going to touch the virus and it's going to infect you. Um, this is not how it works. It's may be possible for a minority of infections, but it's not of epidemiological importance at all. And what has substantially more support is airborne aerosol transmission. And it comes in two plausible forms from exhaling and then from what is known as uh, uh, orofecal transmission, including, you guessed, um, farts. Hmm. Um, that's a, still a plausibility, a, a possibility that hasn't really been excluded. Mm -hmm. um, and given that most people uh, wear masks uh, over their posteriors, uh, you know, it'll be an interesting thing to study in the fullness of time as to, you know, exactly how the, what type of aerosols the, the virus was transmitted by. But this whole story of, you know, um, PPE and masking and six foot rules and sanitizing and scrubbing and washing and going bananas and not touching tennis balls and playing musical instruments in perspex boxes and so on. That was all just sheer anti-science. The seventh myth was the myth of asymptomatic transmission as a driver of the epidemic. The evidence says precisely the opposite, that asymptomatic people don't shed a lot of virus. They're not responsible for um, the bulk of uh, the spread of disease-causing infection. Um, eighth myth was around PCR testing. It's not competent for the diagnosis of COVID or the detection of cases, which is yet it's been the primary way in which cases were counted and described, especially when it's deployed at very what are known as very high cycle thresholds, which have been used. You're prone to picking up scraps of, you know, portions of uh, incompetent virus that may be the result of a prior infection or actually an infection by a different virus. Um, there may be uh, uh, lab contaminations and so on. But at those sensitivities, the vast majority of asymptomatic people who were described as COVID cases when, were not, in fact, infected or infectious. Hmm. And that did a lot to propel the whole thing, these dramatic stories of case numbers rising. If you remember in the, for the first couple of, of the, probably the first year or more, CNN screens bore a constant ticker counting the number of cases in America, you know, mm -hmm. and that was all based on this PCR scam. The ninth one was that COVID was untreatable, that you had to sort of wait till you turn blue, go to the hospital where they'd stick you on remdesivir, which is a drug that's extremely bad for you and put you on a ventilator, which is extremely bad for you. But many off-label drugs have been shown to be effective in many studies. It's not just the famous ones, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Um, and the other thing that, of course, stands out is there was this incredible effort to stigmatize and tarnish those drugs, many of which had demonstrated safety over, you know, not just in studies, but over many decades of application in human 
populations. And the reason for this was quite transparent. You're not allowed to authorize a vaccine under emergency use, use hmm. if there are effective treatments. So the pharmaceutical firms were not at all interested in hearing that some cheap, cheap off-label drug was effective in managing the impact of the disease. The tenth myth was that vaccines materially present, prevented transmission. I mean, even the CDC has now admitted that that was a lie. And they knew they were lying. There's no mechanism of action in the actual vaccines themselves, the mRNA vaccines, I'm talking Pfizer and Moderna and so on, um, that would cause you to expect any kind of substantial reduction in transmission. And uh, it was a it was a shame, a bald-faced lie uh, at the time and has remained one ever since. They've now stopped making it and they've admitted that the transmission suppression is irrelevant. The, the next myth was that the vaccines were about 95% effective. They've had to retrace that gradually down to much lower percentages. But what we've also found is that the key randomized control trials, in particular the Pfizer trial, phase three trial, were completely fraudulent uh, exercises. They've been whistleblowers and studies by reputable scientists, both in the United States and, and in the United Kingdom, which make it just very clear that the studies were nothing less than a gross scientific fraud. Twelfth myth was that vaccines are so safe that nobody should be hesitant to take one. They're the most deadly product that's ever been launched upon the world in terms of total harms done um, in, in pharmaceutical products, of course. Um, and the safety signals have been going off from the very beginning. The signal sent in the vaccine adverse events reporting system was orders of magnitude higher than any ever been received before. It's been completely ignored. There have been insurance company uh, studies uh, released that show that there are very clear and significant harms exceeding the harms caused by COVID in most, if not all, age groups. So the case for the individual and the group of mandating these vaccines is completely hollow. The next myth was that everybody would benefit. And of course, when harms exceed the harms of the actual disease, um, it's that's a completely absurd expectation to have that everybody would would um, benefit. Fourteenth myth was that natural immunity is less durable or less broad or not as strong as the synthetic immunity um, induced by the vaccines. That was nonsense. We knew that before. We know it now. Natural immunity. Also, again, you know, if you look at the mechanism of action of the vaccines, it's an totally absurd expectation to have that the broad natural immunity that is conferred by past infection would be inferior to the very narrow immunity to a specific subset of the coronavirus swarm. That was always a, a ridiculous statement. And the studies that have sought to demonstrate this have all been exercises in bad science and uh, scientific dishonesty. The 15th myth is that science is an institution. You know, we were all told to follow the science. Fauci said he was the science. 
But science is not an institution, and anybody with a vaguely scientific mind knows full well that it's a process, and it's a process that proceeds by very robust conjecture and criticism. The 16th myth was that long COVID was an unusual and dangerous component of all of this. Um, it's true that there are what are called sequelae for, uh, that are associated with respiratory viruses in general, but wherever long COVID clinics have been established, they've been quietly closed, unutilized, and it's become a sort of bogeyman to blame all the vaccine adverse events for. These guys who marketed and, and forced the vaccines upon everybody when they get confronted with a 200% increase or whatever in deaths from cardiac disease, which is what has been reported in the adverse event reporting systems. And they see it in real life. They see it in the insurance company's results. They say, oh, no, but that's long COVID without any evidentiary support. The 17th myth is that a really big one, that containment is possible for contagious respiratory viruses. And this one, you know, it, 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 it was embodied in its most absurd form in, in the form of zero COVID policies that, were, that failed wherever they were attempted. For a little while, Australia and New Zealand thought they had succeeded. China keeps on trying to convince the world that they had succeeded. But of course, they're under lockdown and or until very recently. It's just, it's, it's a nonsense construct. You know, when it comes to respiratory viruses, they are generally big animal reservoirs. So even if you eradicate the disease temporarily amongst all the humans in some given population, whether by vaccinating or by infecting all of them um, so that they recover and become immune, um, those animal reservoirs will keep the disease in circulation mm. and it'll come up time and time again. COVID is with us forever. Um, then there's this myth of pandemicity. This one is probably the most important one for me. It's this, the, the myth is this idea that pandemics are going to occur more and more often because there is, I don't know, more contact between humans and animals or because humans are now more connected and so on and so, so forth. But the reality is exactly the opposite. Urbanization and commercial farming practices have reduced human-animal contact and our greater connectedness as a species means that we have many mild viruses that are related to the deadly ones that are distributed continually all the way around the world. And that ensures that you don't get pockets of immunologically naive people in a rainforest or in a, you know, uh, in a desert maybe, but in any city of the world, you don't get pockets of immunologically naive people. And so this idea that we are to expect the emergence of more and more viruses is a completely false one, more and more deadly viruses. In fact, the argument we make is that COVID is best seen as an example of a non-pandemic. Um, it's wrong to simply say that because a virus has spread, that it's a pandemic. There needs to be some qualification for the scale of disease and severity of it. And when you search through the human history record, it's actually very hard to find outbreaks that really warrant the descriptor pandemic. Hmm. There was a H1N1 epidemic at the end of the First World War that killed an awful number of people, but it came at a time when there was just incredible deprivation, squalor, stress 
after the bloodiest battle that the world had ever seen, where mm. people were impoverished and killed on a scale that had never happened before. It was associated with depletion of medical supplies and medical facilities. It was associated with the spread of bacterial infections uh, owing to unsanitary conditions in the trenches and so on. There was an awful lot going on and those conditions haven't been repeated. So subsequent outbreaks have not even registered in the media's mind. You know, we had um, two of them in the one in the 1950s and one in the 1960s in uh, in America that were comparable to the impact of COVID in terms of the the real clinical impact. And nobody made a fuss. Nobody went bananas. We didn't shut down the world. The last two myths, 19, uh, that the, the idea that reducing spread of a virus reduces deaths. This is wrong. What it does when you reduce the spread is you do so by restricting the mobility of non-vulnerable people. And what that does is it shifts the disease burden onto vulnerable people. So reducing spread is actually expected to cause more of the vulnerable people to get it before immunity becomes widespread enough to stop the circulation mm. on a temporary basis. And so you actually, the expectation is actually that reducing the spread kills more people. And the last one is that escalation of perceived threat is in the interests of public health. You've seen these very creepy nudge units and behavioral science units all planning to increase the level of perceived threat is the way they put it. In other words, mm -hmm. to drive an hysteria, to, to make people go mad with fear. And they've been very successful. What those types of strategy do is they lead to pronounced and deadly nocebo effects. A nocebo effect is the opposite of a placebo effect, where negative expectations that people have in their heads actually start to make the, out, the clinical outcomes worse. And there are very extreme examples of this. In a survey in Australia, when they asked adults what they thought the mortality rate of COVID was for them, so this is healthy working age adults, they said that they thought it was 38%, that if they got COVID, they had a 38% chance of dying. And if you remember from my earlier numbers, I said that a healthy young person under the age of 70 had a negligible risk of death, less than 0.01%. So we are talking about an expectation of death that is out by thousands of times. That's how effective the hysteria was. So those are the 20 myths. That's the science, you know, the, the looking at the science at a macro and a micro level, everything from the virology up to the, the very high level sociology of, um, of um, epidemiology. And it was an ast a stunning set of findings that totally contradicted the, the media narrative, the pharmaceutical industry narrative, the political narrative, and it led to us being banned in a widespread fashion and suppressed on social media, attacked in our professional capacities, um, smeared in the media, wherever we wrote. It was, it's been quite an exciting couple of years. I've developed the thickest skin this side <laughs> of the equator. My goodness gracious, that is quite the list. Um, I, uh, so many things stood out to me there. One, the towards the end there where you talked about increasing the level of perceived threat mm -hmm. and the nocebo effect. Um, there's a, there's a book called uh, dictator's playbook. And one of the 
the main things is never never let a good crisis go to waste and so that kept coming through as you're you're describing this that even though there wasn't a crisis really it was made out to be a world ending crisis and um that effectively gives carte blanche to policymakers right they can do whatever they want in those circumstances so long as people are buying into the the narrative of fear and and death there's an extremely talented epidemiologist in the United Kingdom, a guy by the name of Thomas Jefferson, funny enough, um, who had a saying many years before COVID. He, this was is something he said in response to an attempt to launch a fake epidemic by the World Health Organization in 2009 with the swine flu. I mean, it was a complete fraud, replete with all of the stories about mass vaccination programs and everything, but there was no pandemic at all. This is nothing was happening, you know, it's just made up nonsense. And he had a, a really wry takeaway line. He said, it's almost as if there's a whole industry out there waiting for a pandemic to happen. <laughs> and I think that summarizes it well. These guys were looking for an opportunity. And when it didn't come, didn't come, didn't come, they went out and created one. The first sign of something that was vaguely widespread when they worked out that coronaviruses were uh, multiple that we have many of them, many, many, many circulating. There are four that are, that are that spread globally on an almost personal, uh, permanent basis that we know of. There are probably clusters of hundreds of them that are prevalent in communities all of the time and just of no clinical re relevance. So they knew that if they stuck terribly sensitive PCR tests down everybody's noses, that they'd get lots of positive results. They'd be able to amp up the fear and flog their remdesivir and their vaccines. And they sat there planning it in the months before the the, in, the inception of the, the kind of public perceived pandemic. There were planning events where they said, look, people are going to come along and say exactly the things that Nick says. We need to work out how to silence them. We need to work out how to control the media, how to prevent the voices of so-called misinformation activists mm -hmm. from being heard. They planned all of that. They planned the behavioral science and the nudge units. They planned the use of modeling teams to project catastrophic outcomes, to amp, amp up the fear. All of this is in the public record. I'm not talking about some conspiracy. You can go and look. It's on the internet today. Google event 201, and you can see a bunch of intelligence agency, bioweapons type people, grouping together with big tech people, public health people, pharmaceutical firm people, and, and very strangely, politicians, all theorizing about how they can go about turning a, a, what is in, in essence a non-event into uh, a global catastrophe for the benefit of the pharmaceuticals, pandemic preparedness, and bioweapons industries. It's on the internet. So don't call me a conspiracy theorist. Uh, the recording is there. It's staggering, honestly. Um, the other one that really struck me was the suppression of effective existing treatments. Yeah. Uh, I think you said because that prevents the, um, the legalization of the emergency use of vaccines, perhaps. Um, yeah. So they're down. So people are actually suffering from this virus there are actual cheap abundant <laughs> treatments for it but the 
pharmaceutical establishment, I guess, for lack of a better encompassing term, suppresses that to to make sure its vaccines are being pushed on people, right? They're being produced and sold. And ultimately, not only uh, people are being persuaded or influenced, but there was also the specter of compulsion, right? There was a lot of talk during this episode of uh, vaccine mandates and whatnot. And I don't know, you know better than I, was it, it even was mandated in certain places of the world? I'm not sure, but that that is so self-destructive and insane to me that we have human beings actually suppressing medicine to promote poison, to make yeah. money. I mean, it's so, so crazy. Yeah. I mean, it, remdesivir is a terrible story. It killed many people. You know, people say to me, oh, but we have had millions of deaths worldwide. I agree. We've had millions of uh sort of unexpected deaths worldwide, excess deaths. Um, totally, yes, I agree with that. But I, it's pretty clear from the data that a minority of them were actually caused by the virus. The policy response was what caused most of them. And people say, Are you, no, come on, what, remdesivir, ventilators, isolation, come on. You, then you stop them and you say, hold on a second. Imagine if there was no virus. And I said to you, no new virus, no pandemic on the go. No, no COVID. And I said to you, what are we going to do with all the people who come into hospital with respiratory illness? And it's a, it's a huge portion of people. Lots of, that's, the, that's the way lots of old people end up eventually dying. You know, they're going to die of something. It's, they often get taken out by uh, a respiratory virus or some other type of respiratory passion, pathogen, bacteria, fungal, you know. Um, they, so if just imagine that what we were going to do is when they arrive, we would, we would send them back home, tell them we're not treating you until you're blue. And when they got into the hospital, you were going to isolate them. You were going to feed them a drug that hadn't been tested and that hammered their organs, especially their kidneys. And if they didn't get better within a day, you were going to put them on a ventilator with a 96% fatality rate. You were not going to let them see their relatives. That's one set of policies. The other set of policies was you were going to take old people who, were in, who are incredibly frail, who can die simply because you move their hospital bed. And you're going to shift them out of the hospital or the high care unit or the, or the intensive care unit that they're in, into a nursing home that has no capacity for treating them. If you were going to do these things, you would say, you must be mad. Thousands of people will die. I mean, that's rather obvious, that little thought experiment. And so it's not difficult for people then to make the jump to saying, okay, I understand now how a large proportion of the deaths that were reported to be due to COVID were actually due to the COVID policy response. Hmm. And it's not simply a guess. We have clear statistical signs of that. Viral spread and deaths pursuant to viral spread give off a very clear statistical geospatial signal, and that signal is nowhere to be found. What we see is that the deaths follow the policy response. The spread of the virus is, has been going on for weeks, and there's no excess mortality associated with it. Everybody goes bananas, running around with their skirts above their head, and boom, the deaths arrive all, all over the place at the same time as the policies are implemented. That's not how viruses spread. You will get uh, things emerging at different times and different places and be, you know, a burn over there and then a burn over there. No, wherever the policies were implemented, there was an initial spike. Hmm. That 
is the policy causing the death, not the virus. Wow, it's uh, it's a lot to absorb. Um, the last one that really struck me on your list there was the the reducing the spread actually leads to more deaths. Yeah, that's somewhat counterintuitive because yeah, I, you see the 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 real epidemiological logic of reducing the spread is to try and flatten the curve. Remember that? Oh yeah, that uh, that right. phrase. It's a marketing uh, campaign, yes, I recall. Yeah, and and the idea is that with a flatter curve, you get lower peak uh, utilization in your hospitals, and you don't overburden the hospital system. Never mind, of course, that the hospital systems were never overburdened. Even in New York, you know, the USS Mercy was located in New York Harbor because the modelers told everybody to expect a wall of deaths, and it quietly sailed away, having treated the handful of patients to test the systems you know um so there were no no in fact you know hospitals went bankrupt because they were unutilized during the Mm -hmm. COVID epidemic and so the flatten the curve thing was premised on this bad modeling but it only has that effect under simplistic modeling parameters that do not mimic the real world of graduated mortality where you have young people who don't die and old people who do. Under that circumstance, if you want to reduce total deaths, you actually want the thing to flash through the young population as fast as possible. Hmm. In, in theory, what you would promote as a, as a public health official is coronavirus <laughs> cruises for all the young people, your parties, <laughs> corona parties. You'd send everybody off to kiss each other and more and hope that they infect each other as quickly as possible while you leave the old folks in in a in a in a nice quiet tea garden for um a couple of weeks and um that would build you build up your population mortality by infecting the people who are not at risk more than you infect the the elderly people and of course that wouldn't be a perfect system let's not pretend and of course i'm not advocating that people deliberately infect young children or something like that as i've sometimes been held to have said mm-hmm. but um that would be the mortality minimizing strategy Slowing the spread of viruses is, has some kind of appeal to the man in the street until the a person who understands the math, mathematics and can explain it in a, um, in a sensible fashion gets hold of them. And then it suddenly makes sense. Yes, if I had the choice between sparing myself from the infection and until eventually granny gets taken out by it and getting it myself and having a runny nose for a day or two so that the population immunity is built up, that's what I would do. I would get it myself. This is the view that I took. My whole family got it. All my, mm-hmm. all my employees and family got it. Me, I was the only one who spent a day in bed, and that was largely because I was, uh, you know, I'm I'm prone to, um, uh, exaggerated man flu. You know. <laughs> well, that seems like a policy response that would at least be much more popular. The idea of, you know, because the young people were losing their minds, right? It, the lockdown thing was just absolutely psychologically, soci- sociologically just terrible, right? It just really hard on young people that have very low risk in this whole thing, yet they're they're being subjected to this one-size-fits-all policy response. Um, yeah, you, you, you can imagine what it was like for me, uh, you know, having this clear picture that there was nothing to be afraid of for a person in good health like me at my age. There's mm-hmm. nothing to be afraid of. 
And then watching everybody banging pots, pots and pans to cheer the doctors and nurses on to their deaths. The doctors and nurses terrified. You know, to see a young, a 30-year-old doctor, you know, wetting his pants at the prospect of having to go and work with people who might infect him with the coronavirus is the most unseemly example of cowardice that I think I've ever seen. I, hmm. I, I couldn't believe that this kind of cowardice was being celebrated. And repeatedly, I demanded of executives at hospitals and, you know, I was talking to people, boardrooms and so on, trying to just get the message out that this reaction was all wrong. They all said, well, you should spend a day on a coronavirus ward. So I said, I would gladly do it. I will absolutely gladly do it. And they said, I will take you. And then none of them would take me, you know. Because <laughs> um, I, I literally, I, I was absolutely unafraid at uh, from early on of uh, being in the company of people who were ill with COVID. It didn't bother me in the slightest. Hmm. And that was because I had a realistic appraisal of the risk and realized that actually me becoming infected was something that would be of benefit to right. some theory theoretical old person out there. Right. Yeah. Wow. It's, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of, <clears throat> preying on those basic intuitions i guess that especially that last one reducing the spread actually kills more people i think unless you have someone explain how that's the case that your natural intuition is always oh of course we need to slow the spread flatten the yeah. curve save grandma you know all these things um okay that's super fascinating scientific data thank you for sharing all of that now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor crowd health CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now fine art is an alternative asset class and historically it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation most investors typically hold anywhere from two to ten percent of their assets in an asset like fine art 
To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Where do we start the political conversation and, and what has your organization uh, been doing to that end? Yeah, so we, we've launched a major initiative now called the PESEL Initiative, which uh, stands for, let me see if I can get this right, six letters, politics, economics, sociology, legal, ethical, and, and technological aspects of the COVID phenomenon broadly understood, the PESEL Initiative. And that's an approach take, taking the same approach multidisciplinary uh you know dedicated teams looking at uh various studies covering things like the the influence of the finance houses and central banks the 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 world of central bank digital currencies and that kind of thing the whole pre pandemic preparedness agenda and its political and defense industry motivators uh the media control problem that's a major one we've got we haven't got free media anywhere in the world of any significance it's the independent media and small outlets who are holding the candle the very dim candle of journalism alive and so on the number of projects and we we need to bring some intellectual rigor we believe to this work Anybody can sit down at the moment and go, oh, Fauci, oh, Tedros, oh, WEF, WHO, name the organizations and throw their arms up and screech and say these people are terrible and they do terrible things and they want terrible things. But that is not a good analysis. That's not a good enough analysis to put in front of court of law or to enter into a white paper that goes before a Senate hearing or a a parliamentary hearing somewhere else in the world. The work needs to be done. It needs to be done rigorously. And there is no hope on earth that the universities who are richly funded by the pharmaceutical companies who were prime movers in this whole story and influenced by the governors, governments who were the control grabbers in this whole story are going to do it on their own accord. It's not going to happen in the normal places where one would expect such research to take place. So we're going to do it. And we are trying to raise the funding for it at the moment. The seeding of each project takes $100,000. We're talking about paid academic researchers with a research assistance in properly defined and scoped projects with deadlines and deliverables and so on. Each project costs about $100,000. So we've got a crowdfunding platform for that, and we're looking for individual donors. We have a 10 by 10 campaign looking for 10 $10,000 donations from people who are keen to see this work done in a rigorous fashion. Um, and that is 
the the subject that animates me the most at the moment is looking at this whole political question. So what I would like to do with our remaining hour is to to try and give an architecture to the political and philosophical aspects of the 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 COVID phenomenon that I think will surprise some people and make them think a little differently about the world. And where the story starts is with a single terrible concept called centralization. And I imagine a lot of your listeners will already have already have an allergy to centralization, and that's great. But I think the important thing is to realize that what we need to propagate throughout the world is a much better and more nuanced understanding of why centralization is a bad thing. It's not simply because we're liberally minded or libertarian minded people or something like that. We don't like centralization. We prefer uh, homegrown food or something. It's not a question of preferences. There are substantive intellectual reasons, axiomatic reasons, why centralization is a terrible, terrible idea. Hmm. And the, the roots of it actually lie right at the very foundations of knowledge itself. Whenever you're faced with any form of complexity, and we are faced with complexity in almost any aspect of life that we care about, whether it's an economy or a pandemic for that matter, or even just the interaction between two human beings, we're in a situation that is beyond analytic tractability. You can't pull out a spreadsheet and model it or write out a scientific equation that describes it or bring to bear some kind of philosophical reasoning that takes you from A to B to C and gets you to a prediction or a solution for a problem or some neat, tight description of a system. None of that is at all possible. And the way in which we grow our knowledge in the face of complexity is through a process of continuous conjecture and criticism. And that is the only way we grow our knowledge in the face of complexity. It is not possible to analyze your way out of a complex system for one guy, no matter how clever he is, to sit down and write out the answer. That has always been the case and will always be the case. It's an intractable situation. We proceed by evolutionary means only. And I use that word evolutionary. I'm not talking about Darwinian evolution here before anybody gets upset. I'm talking about evolution in general. We, we only have an evolutionary approach. That's our only approach that works to the creation of new knowledge in the face of complexity. And what that leads to is a situation where any attempt to centralize has the necessary impact of destroying the means of error correction because centralized systems enforce a one-size-fits-all perspective on the problem and a one-size-fits-all solution. And they suppress. They suppress every single alternative idea, every questioner, every objector, every dissenting voice. 
is suppressed in the face of centralized systems. And look at what's happened with COVID. It's exactly that. Powerful interests decided that we need a global response to a global crisis and, you know, damn it, we're going to get it. And we saw the lockstep rollout of these society-shattering policies that had never been tried before, that did appear, appeared nowhere in the policy guidelines. They were centralist ideas. And sure enough, the moment even some of the best and most reputable scientists in the world stood up and said, hold on a second. That's not going to work. Or maybe we should try this first. Or maybe we should test it on a small scale before we go and shut down schools and the world and businesses and destroy jobs and so on. The moment that happened, the censorship began, the suppression, the smearing. That's the world of centralization. We saw it. It was alive in front of us in the COVID experience. But that situation is entirely generalizable. Centralization is incompatible with knowledge growth of any sort. And when you don't have knowledge growth, you can't solve problems. When you can't solve problems, you can't have economic growth. Economic growth does not come from interest rate policies of central banks. It comes from human ingenuity, people solving problems in a very distributed, diverse fashion, not guided by the state or by Fauci or by Tedros, or by anybody, Bill Gates, whoever. Not guided by any single authority, but on their own, independently, in a, what can only be described as a, a, a massive and distributed, continuous process of conjecture and criticism, businessmen and inventors and creatives of all sorts are trying this and trying that and being tested in the real world with real world results, whether that real world is a lab or an audience at a concert or a marketplace or a customer base. That's the refutation, the conjecture and refutation. And so conditions of economic liberalism, of freedom, are absolutely essential to economic growth, and there is no period in human history where economic li liberty has been reduced and economic growth has resulted. It's never happened. We've lived in a, what is, in effect, a very small fraction of human history during which pronounced economic growth has been possible and witnessed. We're fortunate in, in that regard, I believe because we've seen unbelievable improvements in human flourishing over the last couple of centuries, two or three centuries. Previous occasions, this has happened for much shorter periods in the, in the, the period of the Greek city-states is one. Um, there was a, a, a brief flourishing in the 12th century in the, the Arab world. But for the most part, human beings have lived under authoritarian regimes, which are incompatible with growth of any sort. And it, life has been dull and boring, and there was never any, a re, ever, never ever an expectation for anybody to, to die in a home that was better than, one in, than the one into which they were born. So it's really important 
I believe, to understand how fundamentally incompatible centralization is with human flourishing. Brilliantly said. Um, the, what came up for me there quickly was the essay by Hayek, The Use of Knowledge in Society, where he talks about many of the same points he just highlighted, that basically to centralize decision-making is to destroy the flow of information itself. Yep. And when you destroy the flow of information, you destroy distributed cognition and problem solving the market process that solves all the problems, produces all the wealth, et cetera, satisfies consumer demand. Um, and it's really just that I like how you bring up evolution because I always, I come back to evolution often. Like it's the simplest algorithm there is, but that's what makes it so powerful. Like if it works, keep it. If it does not work, discard it. Um, and you, when you centralize, you are actually inhibiting that adaptive response, right? The individual actor in a situation does not get to decide whether it works or doesn't work. They need to go run it up the chain of command and seek approval and wait for the command to come back down. And then they decide what to do. But that all, all the while is just, it's just inhibiting, again, the flow of information. So you're, you're actually destroying the adaptivity of the human species when yes. you centralize. Yes, and, the, and, and the it's philosophy. and it's you know adaptivity. What like what you, you highlighted is error correction. Mm. Right, that's all we're trying to do. Right, it's like we're trying a thing. We we never know what's going to happen. We never know the outcome with certainty of our actions. We mm. we generate an action. We expect an outcome. The outcome diverges slightly from what we expect, and we adjust. Right, so it's this constant process of calibration correcting ourselves back to the path of toward the end that we're aiming at. And that is almost indistinguishable from intelligence itself. I've heard intelligence yes. defined as um, the capacity to pursue a single end by multiple means. So you can try to approach a goal one way, you might get blocked or stopped or it doesn't work. So you'll adjust, right? You'll adjust your approach and approach the same end with a different means um I have, so I what are we saying is like the centralization is destroying collective intelligence frankly mm. yeah it's exactly right and I'd, I'd like to actually try and fuse those uh perspectives that you gave because they're good ones von hayek and von misses and Sa mm. thomas Sowell uh, mm -hmm. all have this thing pretty waxed in different ways mm. but there's a philosopher called david deutsch who actually starts off like but he's still a physicist but he, he wrote two very interesting books called The Fabric of Reality and uh, The Beginning of Infinity, where he lays out uh, a very clear analysis on, on the subject of knowledge. Because, you know, you talk about it in, in terms of information. Um, how do you get information to be transmitted and to survive and so on? Um, knowledge is information that has survived a, an evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the analogy that he uses, he, he says, a scientist writes 10 ideas on, a, on his notepad. Mm. He thinks about them over the, overnight. And when he wakes up, he throws the bad ones in the waste paper bin and the rest he keeps on his desk. So that's part of, that's, that's part of the, it's a very simple example of the process of a winnowing. Uh, conjecture and refutation takes place. It's all happening within the scientist's mind. There are no other people involved. The scientist has his creative idea, the conjecture, 
and then he criticizes it while he's asleep and the bad information is destroyed and the good information survives so to to you know to to think I won't go into the, the the detail of all of this, but to give the to look at the structure of what is data, what is information, what is knowledge, it's very much it's clearly an epistemological question, but it, it it's an it's a a question which I believe can't be usefully answered without approaching it through the through the lens of evolution. Hmm. So so Hayek's uh, direction of of focusing on the information is entirely right, but you need to emphasize the evolutionary aspect of it to really home in on the, the reality um yeah. and uh this 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 i believe is entirely fundamental and should animate all of our political and uh, political thoughts and all of our thoughts on institutional design and political architecture for that matter right no it's it's yeah it's a great point in this um what you describe as continuous process of conjecture and criticism. Uh, this is what I've, I typically refer to in my writing and talking as trial and error or tinkering, mm -hmm. right? This, this constant um, probing of the environment for information. We're like, we're forging or mining for information. And again, if centralization is the, the phenomena that destroys that process or inhibits that process, um, the opposite of centralization clearly is decentralization. So you could almost say like the more we decentralize our systems, the more information is flowing and the more intelligent we are, the more, the more, yes. I don't know if intelligent is the word I want to use here. You could almost say um, <clears throat> it's wealth, right? It's wealth. It's, it's how easily and deftly and economically are we solving these problems? and moving on yes. to other problems, right? And yes. the decentralized, uh, you know, libertarian or maximally sovereign or free individuals, uh, that is the system that where information best flows and we, we most economically solve problems. Like that's kind of the same theme that libertarian philosophers have been saying for 500 years, but we've always dealt with the realities of physical force and politics right people will yeah. just not buy into that theory and try to game it for themselves and that's proven to be a very destructive pattern yeah look um i'm just trying to think about how to respond to that because i have something i'd like to sort of delve into but it might be worthwhile backing up for a second and going to the question of this what is intelligence that mm -hmm. you raised mm -hmm. which is very apt um, and you said, I think, if I remember, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but you said it's about the ability to um, approach a problem from, you know, multiple perspectives. Um, if you fail with your first attempt to solve it or to to circumnavigate it, yeah, I think that's subsumed into what I would describe as intelligence, which is the ability to create new explanations. Hmm. Um, because you, in your example, you've kind of got, ah, I see what's wrong. We're going to do this. Oops, it doesn't work. So you create a new explanation for how the problem is going to be solved or what the problem is, and uh, you try again. But I, the, the word I emphasize there is not so much the, 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 the word explanation as create, hmm. because I think there's a fundamentally creative aspect to all of this. Mm -hmm. Other animals don't do it. Uh, humans are the only ones who have this 
uh, faculty facility and we we do it as far as we can tell in a way that's better than any other form of life in the observable universe mm -hmm. um, and it's also a way that we've never been able to it's also a thing that we've never been able to describe algorithmically mm -hmm. so for right. that reason I'm not one of these people who fears an AI singularity I regard AI, artificial intelligence, as a bad descriptor for automation. Automation mm -hmm. would be a far better word. And intelligence is an entirely different thing. It's anything but automation. In fact, we know nothing about how to automate intelligence. Nothing. Mm -hmm. We have no clue. Not even the mm -hmm. most basic algorithm to create to turn a machine into a creative enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, but we do it. And I think a lot of it has to do with try this, try that, conjecture and, and criticism type of thing. But there's something else because you can make a computer try multiple things. When a robot is trying to get around an, an obstacle and it backs out and try, goes forward and mm -hmm. backwards, that's kind of a dumb conjecture and criticism, mm -hmm. if you like, where hitting the obstacle constitutes the criticism and getting around it is the successful conjecture. But that's not good enough for me. It's more than that. The human intelligence would be stopping before the obstacle and and saying you know um uh and and getting it right first time or something or or or, or moving the obstacle or something like that mm -hmm. you know that would be uh we call it thinking out the box when we apply right. it to the people right and and i think that process of creativity is not acknowledged people put too much store on the flow of information and the availability of data more data does not make you more intelligent or more able to make mm -hmm. good decisions. This is a mistake mm -hmm. for the reasons I discussed earlier. You're dealing with complexity. You need better explanations, mm -hmm. and those explanations are best formed by an through an evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. um, I like to use the word, the example of religions. You know, it's so fashionable these days to dump on religions. Mm -hmm. Atheism is a very fashionable position. You. You stand up, you say, well, even at a dinner party, it's completely de rigueur these days to hear somebody say they're, they're, not, not, they're not at all in favor of dogmatic religion. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think this is a particularly stupid position to hold. I, I believe that what you're dealing with when it comes to a religion is a highly evolved system, not a perfect system, a highly evolved system that embeds a lot of solutions to problems that are lost in the midst of time. Mm -hmm. And those solutions are worth tinkering with, mm -hmm. but you want to do it at the margins and slowly because you don't mm -hmm. know what you're playing with. Right. That complex, you think you're solving a problem, but what you're not realizing is you're undoing the solution to a much bigger problem that we've mm -hmm. lost sight of. Mm -hmm. And it comes rushing out. And the world goes bananas. Mm. The whole everything falls apart. Your society collapses. You know, um, so you don't want to let this sort of genie out of the bottle. You know, um, we want to move slowly. Yeah. So what do what does what do religions have as a feature? They have dogma, mm -hmm. that which slows down the rate of change, that which makes people less likely to try to embark on wholesale revisions of systems that have stood the test of time. Mm -hmm. To be a dogmatic believer in those uh, those systems as perfect, never mm -hmm. to be changed, infallible, is equally stupid position to hold. Mm -hmm. I agree. But to regard the dogma itself 
as something essentially and necessarily worthy of scorn is I believe to adopt a posture of that, that serves only to prove the stunted nature of the intellect of the utterer. <laughs> you know, we do need to, we do need to be humble in the face of complexity and to, to be continually aware that we are dealing all over our lives in every basic human interaction, every little so cultural taboo or norm or meme mm -hmm. is actually a, in itself a little evolved system. There's, mm -hmm. there's a reason we interact in the way, way we do and we have these norms. They've, they've formed and evolved over, over eons. In some, in some cases, even predating the ascent of man, you know, these mm -hmm. are things that come that stretch deep into our mammalian past mm -hmm. and um, our broader mammalian past, I should say. And so it's, it's a thing to be encouraged, to be aware that, that, that we, whilst we want progress and we want things to th therefore to change, progress can't happen without change. We want problems to be solved. Mm -hmm. Without problems being solved, there is no change. Whilst we want all those things, what we do not want is some clever idiot to come over the hill with an idea for deleting the whole system and starting with one that he thought of yesterday. Mm -hmm. That's, that is just not something we want. Mm -hmm. And what, I, what I've just described, I think, I would suggest, is actually a kind of um, philosophical underpinning of small-c conservatism. The idea that you don't want to let go of all the traditions at once. You want to conserve them. Mm -hmm. You might want to conserve an ecology, a market system. There are many mm -hmm. things which you want to conserve. Why? Because they've served you well in the past, and you've got to be very careful of changing them. That doesn't mean you want to conserve them absolutely and without any changes, mm -hmm. but you're just resistant to their wholesale revision. And the opposite of conservative is not a liberal. This is a ridiculous idea that I believe has been propagandized upon us. The conservative is not the opposite of liberal. Mm -hmm. Conservative is the opposite of revolutionary. What we, mm -hmm. what we want to be mindful of is the capacity of revolutions to do damage in ways that the revolutionaries did not conceive of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> well, many great points there. I, I agree with you on, you know, we can't just lump rationality into one thing right there is this there's algorithmic rationality which as you described the robot trying to get through the door it's going to try a bunch of different adjustments and maybe it'll figure it out maybe it won't but that is distinct from contemplative rationality that humans seem to have right where we can look at the entire game you know we think outside the box like, why are we doing this what is the purpose how could we maybe play a different game or do, do this whole thing differently uh the rope at least so far as I understand artificial intelligence today, like we, they don't do that, right? They need to be trained they need to be coded to a certain problem set. Um, whereas humans, I guess the, the, the magic of being human somehow is that we are self programming, right? Isn't that what we're doing when we're running this, this software called language, you and I are exchanging ideas, mm -hmm. but we can actually, step outside of ourselves and evaluate like how we participate in this 
yes. this larger market process. And it's that, that stepping outside of constantly moving outside of the, the frame, right? You can, what do they call this? Uh, reframing or, or transframing. You take one frame on an, on a problem or a perception and you can, you can identify the frame itself, right? And how it limits the way you view the world yeah. and you can step into another frame and look at it differently, et cetera. And I'm with you on religion as well, because, you know, you can't, th these are highly, as you said, highly evolved, I would say systems that have benefited from the Lindy effect, right? They've been around for a long time. You have to just humble yourself in that moment and know that you're one small actor in a long sequence of many actors, right? And it's that market process that promotes certain institutions or technologies, different things um, to a position of prominence. And for you to just kind of wholesale, say, oh, we don't need that anymore. Let's do it this way. It's almost guaranteed to create unintended consequences. So, I, you know, dogma is a strong word. I'd never thought of it that way, but I guess it does serve as kind of a, a bulwark against that. Yeah. That if you it's have some, you know, something some procedure that is just uh, practiced algorithmically almost that it would actually protect you from um, some less evolved procedure, right? That someone might yeah. propose. Yeah. I like to think of it as a, you know, dogmatism as something that needs to be optimized, not something that needs to be entirely avoided. Right. Um, so you, you, you want, I, I think it's that chap, uh, the Canadian guy, Jordan Peterson, um, mm -hmm. He puts it quite well. He said, you, you want to have people who are monitoring the ossification of hierarchies mm -hmm. and people who are clipping them um, when they ossify. Right. And you want to try and do that without the whole hierarchy being brought down. Yes. You know? um, yes. It's this balance between hierarchical stability and the potential for transformation. Yeah. Right. And you see this in nature. I don't know. The, I've seen um, like... Uh, this is video like um, time-lapse footage, I guess, of things like a slime mold, how it works. It has a, is a, the center is very like stable, right? It doesn't change a lot, but it's doing all these exploratory actions at the edges and it's just trying to grow, right? So there's this, yeah. it's kind of like one foot on order, one foot on chaos trying to grow. And that's what, what, that's what we're doing as a civilization as well, right? We need these very stable mm -hmm. structures in the middle, but we need entrepreneurship and exploratory behavior at the edges. And it's just striking that balance, which seems to be yeah. the infinite game. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, self-programming, also known as self-authoring. Mm -hmm. I think that is, there is something important in that. Yeah. And I'm responding here with intuition because I, I don't have the answer to what, what uh, constitutes creative intelligence. How do you algorithm? Uh, how do you turn it into an algorithm? Like I, I'm also not sure whether the answer is going to be stumbled across in a in somebody's midnight hours in a study uh, mm -hmm. in some far corner of the earth. You know, somebody tomorrow is going to wake up with the Einsteinian revelation of how creativity happens, and tomorrow we're going to have a computer that can do it. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not sure whether that happens tomorrow or never. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's in principle possible because the, certainly it's the case that our brains themselves work on algorithms. They're just extremely complicated ones. Mm -hmm. And that, and and it's also, it's actually a myth that all the algorithms happen 
within our brains. They happen in our whole bodies. You know, there are neurons elsewhere in our bodies and there's hormonal right. systems regulating the way we think. And it's very, very complicated. And the interaction mm-hmm. with the outside world, with other people, there's a, a real sort of, it's even the term hive mind doesn't uh, describe the way uh, human minds are formed and developed. It's very complicated. There is an aspect of uh, self-authoring very definitely. And there's like a psychological way you can bring up children to believe in their capacity to self-author and mm-hmm. therefore to do more of it. There are all sorts of wonderful aspects of this that I, you could, I could talk for two hours on a program just about mm-hmm. that concept because it's, it's really interesting. Um, child, childhood, childhood, uh, child development is for me a fascinating field. It's in yes. many ways much more interesting to read there than it is to read the, the seminal texts of AI because I, I believe it's the, the person who comes up with the solution to the problem of forming an algorithm for creative intelligence will be a person who's watched children, not mm-hmm. a person who's spent a lot of time coding computers. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, the, um, there's a lot on this. So Jean Piaget, who's influenced Peterson, he talks a lot about childhood development. Um, mm-hmm. There's also Machia Eliad. He makes an argument that the, individual's psychological development process mirrors the sociological development process yeah so like we as a civilization are going through a maturity interesting you know a growing um i like that one yeah I but yeah if, if nothing else we yeah. when, when we observe children we're seeing a human being come online if you will right yeah. they're, they're growing into full adult rationality yeah. and um i mean as a father of a four-year-old i know i've learned a lot about myself and human being more generally just by being a father of a young young girl um and yeah i i guess just it comes back to humility for me repeatedly it's like the faster the more complex the system the more humble you need to be right because you're not you by definition you can't you can't fully analyze a complex system like knowledge just runs out, right? It doesn't do it. It cannot, cannot perfectly map a complex system. And I think too, the faster things are changing, the more humble you need to be. So obviously here in the digital age, things are changing so unbelievably fast um, that the, the right strategy is to just be humble and, and to your point, conservative, right? That's where I think we get, there's a lot of value to be had from traditional ways of life. Yeah. You need to have some respect for them, the right amount sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so maybe, you know, so we've, we've diverted nicely. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the discussion of centralization started this whole thing. Um, but there's another core in the whole philosophical orientation, which I think we ought to get out there. And that's the idea of, correspondence with reality mm-hmm. um people say well <clears throat> doesn't everybody have that or want that it isn't correspondence with reality what we in, in the background whenever we make an assertion about the world i would love that to be the case but it isn't and that's a huge problem over the last several decades a stream of thought has developed that says that reality is a matter of perspective. And the uh, so, so for me, 
you you have to agree first before we can discuss all of these things that it is in some way virtuous to seek to comport with reality and not to imagine that reality is something that we create on whim. Um, we create, by all means, we alter reality by solving problems and uh, being creative. But it's not the case that we ch change things because of our identities or our perspectives or our cultural position or anything like that. There's one unified reality and we do well to pursue correspondence with it. And to me, it's a second great idea. I don't think it's worth us going too deep into the bowels of that right now because I'll talk just now about the three, the, the RUM-isms, R-U-M, which I think are at the heart of the centralist agenda, the, the three terrible ideas that infest the minds of all of the persons involved in this great centralization program called uh, globalism. And th those three are, the RUM stands for relativism, utilitarianism, and Malthusianism, hmm. three terrible ideas. And the reason I, I, I approached this by starting first with centralization and second, secondly with correspondence with reality is there, those are very bedrock axiomatic principles. And my proposition is that once you have those as axioms, of the axiomatic framework on which you are prepared to develop the rest of your thought, the rumisms of relativism, utilitarianism, and, and Malthusianism are very quickly dismantled as notions. Mm. Um, and I don't know if you'd like to explore those three a little bit and just, just shoot back and forth some perspectives. I, I think it would probably be a good idea to do so because I think they animate the entire sort of globalist technocratic vision, the idea of global centralized control of lockstep of global crisis and global solution. Mm -hmm. my, it's my belief that those are sort of the three, their three bedrock axiomatic assumptions, which we can dismantle with R2. Yes, I, I would love to. I, I definitely have some thoughts on relativism and Malthusianism. I'm not so sure how utilitarianism plays into this, but I'd love to hear your perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, the first one, let's get it out the way quickly. Relativism is this idea that uh, that re reality, truth, depends on the location of the observer. It depends on the, um, the identity of the observer. Not in any way that Einstein's um, relativism entails. That's a different, different construct altogether. Einsteinian relativism has nothing to do with philosophical relativism. But there's this idea out there, we call it philosophical relativism or postmodern relativism, that it's there's no truth in terms of morality. It's there's no um it's all just a matter of cultural perspective and preference. Um Sam Harris, who I used to listen to before he went bananas, uh used to have a little analogy where he said, you know, he, he was he was approached by a relativist at a conference and he said to, you know, if there was a country where 
the 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 social more was that um every the the received wisdom of the religion was that every third shall walk in darkness and as a result what they would do is put out the eyes of every third to, child to be born into the village would you say that that was a, a moral system was that okay you know could you judge that or, or not she said no you couldn't judge that because you would be judging by the mores of another civilization there's nothing wrong with that and it rather for me illustrated how you know wonky that type of thinking can go but it's crept in in ways that other that i think people haven't noticed the whole trans trans initiative this idea that identifying as is a um a valid thing to do is very much of the same species it's a relativist position that who am i to bring my logic into that person's head that where what are we saying when we say i don't have the right to do that we're saying that there's no there's no need for us to correspond with reality right. the and the idea that has to be attacked there is this notion that it's possible for a human being or any entity to know what it is like to be something that they aren't. That's impossible. Mm -hmm. It's not possible for a man, by which I mean the, under the traditional understanding of what a man is hmm. with certain appendages, to know what it is like to be a woman. It's just fact. Mm -hmm. So when that person says, which they are saying when they say when they say i identify as a woman they are implicitly making a claim to knowledge of what it is like to be a woman which they cannot possibly have and the entire enterprise should fall down right there the original classification of this as a cognitive disorder is correct we do not have to recognize this as a valid claim Right. This is not to say that you wouldn't be compassionate towards such people, that you wouldn't want to absorb them into your society in some way. In fact, here where I live in South Africa, there's a, there's there's some fantastic, there's a fantastic example of a very ancient practice of the absorption absorption of transgender people into the society in a in a very harmonious and and fruitful and uh, socially cohesive way, and it doesn't entail changing their pronouns or uh, describing the transgender person as the as the man when they're actually a woman or something like that doesn't entail any of that there's no friction but it's it's an example of the the relativism and how deeply it has penetrated where uh, we validate thoughts simply because they are the thoughts of some other person rather mm -hmm. than you know, maybe listening to them just the respectful limit i would suggest but this demand to simply validate uh, totally illogical propositions is mm -hmm. one of the symptoms of relativism. And it, it shows up everywhere. Um, utilitarianism, that one's but extremely... If I can make sorry. just a couple of comments on relativism yeah. before we move on. Yeah, go. Um, yeah. yeah, this whole idea that all perspectives are equally true, I think it found its most absurd expression in this, you know, two plus two equals five was kind of the thing going around that math was somehow subsumed by this idea that all perspectives are equally true, that whatever you think two plus two equals is what it equals. I mean, that you're talking about undermining the entire 
fabric of human rationality, right? That's the that's the attack on language. Ultimately, if math is the ultimate language, um, you're, you're destroying that connective tissue that holds social units together. And I, you know, in terms of the the moral dimensions of this, Rothbard has a great quote. He says, "To be moral, an act must be free." And you know, I, I've man. Relativism has a pretty good strike on morality in a way that it, it just to claim that, you know, it's all power games and that whatever you say is moral is not necessarily what I say is moral. It, it's contingent on our, our aims and our what, whatever, um, whatever power we are trying to acquire. But there's this, this book, Leela, and I did a series on this that talks about morality as being uh freedom effectively like what affords the greatest freedom and so the the one of the inst the instances the author gives is you know from the perspective of a virus the doctor that's treating the virus is like committing genocide right he's a he's slaughtering all the viruses so the, the virus would say the doctor is this immoral you know genocidal maniac but the doctor, obviously, for human beings, is performing a very moral act in trying to destroy the virus that's destroying people, right? So there's these different layers, and it's like whatever, it's moral for a certain layer, like human beings, to subjugate and destroy things that are hurting us. Um, that would be moral from our perspective, immoral from the perspective of the virus, necessarily. But when you start to pull that into the same layer, right, where we're trying to now control people or destroy people, like that obviously is not moral. So there's something about, I think maximizing human freedom is like the most moral thing you can do ultimately. So that's why I always on the show, we get down to life, liberty, and property being supportive of that. Yeah. And there, then there on the... There are subtleties there, if I may mm -hmm. interject. Um, would you admit the freedom to... Um, abrogate certain of your rights to a group um, in, in exchange for membership and benefits of that group. If it's consensual. Yeah, sure. If you have the right to say no, you have the right to exit the group, right? If I, if you and I make an agreement and say, Hey, I'm not going to eat cheeseburgers anymore. So long as I'm working for yeah. you or whatever the deal is like, well, yeah, I consensually gave up my yeah. right to cheeseburgers. Yeah. And how far up does that go? You know, for me, at some point, it stops being uh, sort of a valid proposition. Like being a, a citizen of a country shouldn't be sort of inside that. It shouldn't be assessed in that through that lens. You you shouldn't be told, well, if you don't like it, you know, get out and emigrate. You know, mm -hmm. your rights need to be enforceable and non. You you shouldn't be a, uh, allowed to sign them away mm -hmm. at the level of the nation. There's a scale specificities to the solution of that problem. It, it it it's that sort of consensual abrogation of rights to a community makes sense at a local level and less mm -hmm. sense as you progress towards a more centralized level. Yes. yes In other words, yes. what I'm pointing to is the 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 interaction of um scale mm -hmm. and social organization. One hundred percent. Um Taleb makes a great point where he says that at the family level I am a socialist or communist, right? Yeah. Like, we all get I'm equal not gonna, I, 
I'm going to go have breakfast with my daughter after this. Well, I bought all the food and all the house and I'm just going to give it to her. I'm not going to charge her for it. Right. So I'm clearly I'm, I'm behaving communistically or socialistically, but at the nation state scale, you're, I, I, he, and Taleb said the same thing. He's a ruthless capitalist, right? It's all about I'm an anarcho libertarian. <laughs> yes. Anarcho capitalist to the bone. And, um, uh, so that, that's a great point there. There's definitely a scale variance to it. Um, yeah. and I, I, on the last point of this whole, I love that you, you dismantled that claim of I'm a, what do they say? I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, but it's like, how could you even know? What are you talking about? I might as well say I'm a lion trapped in a man's body. Like we have no idea what it's like to be a lion. You just can't. It's not possible. But this idea, that's a false claim, first of all, but then they back it up with this kind of forced imaginary play. It's like, you better call me a a woman or else I'm going to, you know, hurt you or have some political action against you like that is insane like kids again back to children children don't tolerate forced imaginary play if someone comes in and they're like you're this and you're that well the kids decide right the kids decide what role they're going to be it's consensual play has to be consensual and so the idea that adults can force other adults to play imaginary with them based on their selected pronoun is just fucking bananas as far as i can tell it is bananas it's totally bananas. No. Should we do utilitarianism? Yes, please. I think that's the most important one. Um, so utilitarianism briefly is is the idea that you know, it's often stated as the ends justify the means, but more broadly, it it involves the idea that somebody can calculate the results of a particular course of action or of a set of plausible mm-hmm. actions and evaluate those plausible actions in terms of some measure of their uh, good. Mm-hmm. So you see very quickly how this can be analyzed from the lens, the same lens that we analyzed the problem of centralization, that you know, who is this person and what kind of magical spreadsheet does he have? Mm-hmm. Um, we yet utilitarianism is absolutely rampant you have this very creepy movement i mentioned sam harris earlier he interviewed uh two people um at least two uh the, the philosopher from i think it's new zealand maybe australia peter singer and the guy um mccaskill uh will mccaskill who runs this very creepy organization called, um, or, or, or movement rather, called Effective Altruism. In South Africa, we've got a guy called David Benatar, who's very much of the same ilk. And I've been following these guys for years, and it's very disturbing, because if you have this intuition that I have, that um, it's, it's just impossible beyond the, the reach of man to, to build such spreadsheets and to have such utilitarian visions. Um, of any coherence anyway, then you, 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 you see the potential for vast destruction as these guys start trying to sacrifice that person in favor of that person or that person's income in favor of that person's income. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yet this is, this is shown up time and time again, the greater good. We're wearing masks when you, we're forcing, in, we're forcing you to wear a mask or to get a shot for the greater good. We know 
We know because we're clever people and we've done a spreadsheet and we, we definitely know. We built a model, you know, mm. um, and we know that it's good for the greater good. Mm. And even if you think it's not good for you, well, we're not sure that you're right, hmm. but it's, that's irrelevant. We're doing it for the greater good to save mm. grannies or whatever. Mm-hmm. Minimize to get zero COVID, whatever objective function it is that they've that has entered their tiny little minds at that point in time. These are unexception, totally unexceptional thinkers, by the way. None of them mm-hmm. have any pedigree whatsoever. But it's like a, a fundamental that sitting it, utilitarianism utilitarianism walks around the corridors of the U.S. Department of Defense of the World Economic Forum, of the World Health Organization. And it is an ugly, ugly monster. Mm-hmm. It has horns in places where horns shouldn't be. And um, that thing is in danger of animating policies that affect humans in an, in, in unimagin- at an unimaginable scale something we've never seen before, something that makes all past tragedies look like child's play. That's how rampant utilitarianism has become. What, so what's, the, what's the alternative? We, we need, you need to remember what, what the alternative to utilitarianism is. It's virtue ethics. It's the, the idea that we, we carry with us by virtue of our Evolution, biological, cultural, political, social evolution, we carry with us ideas of the virtuous. Mm. I I should have mentioned religious evolution as well. Um, And those animate our social interactions at every scale, from Mm. the play of children to the way in which families conduct themselves to the way in which we handle strangers uh those the the, a a sense of virtues of their approximate pecking order of their appropriate locations of application and so on is something we're all infused with we we what we inherit is that the ends never justify the means the means are everything and the ends will be what they are they'll be what they'll be so utilitarianism is an inversion mm. of our evolved knowledge. And you get this creepy mm. correspondence between those who are centralizers and those who are utilitarians. Mm. And it's a thing to watch for. And there was a fascinating podcast. If your listeners haven't been on it, onto it, it's just for the last couple of days, Whitney Webb interviewing uh, two guys whose names I forget, hadn't heard of them before, on the FTX scandal. And mm. she joins the dots, much to my delight, with my sort of, let's call it intellectual nemesis, William McCaskill, um, <clears throat> and the, uh, the effect of altruism movement, and the grooming of, uh, what's his name, Bankfine, uh, sorry, Bank Sam Freed. Bankman Freed, yeah. Sam Bankman Freed, the grooming of Sam Bankman Freed, and so on. So this this horrible fraudulent uh, cesspool called FTX looks very much like the spawn of the effective altruism movement. Mm. 
And that doesn't surprise me in the least. I was delighted to listen to the, the podcast. Absolutely excellent. One of the, my top podcasts of recent years to listen to. And um, yeah, there it comes. You know, it's sort of this this habit of the the the, the, the fellow the, bed, the bedfellows, uh, central central centralists and utilitarianists. That was on Whitney Webb's podcast. Was that episode? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I listened to it on Spotify. It's definitely there. I, I'll give it. I'll give it to you for the program notes. Um, okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, she's coming on the show soon. Um, oh wow! So, so I'm excited she's to great. talk to her. Yeah. Um, no, this is this is great. The, you know, so one of the things Jordan Peterson talked about this actually that Deloitte, which is one of the big four accounting firms in the world, also a huge consulting consulting practice, they're putting out these studies. And now again, this is secondhand. I'm, I'm relaying what someone else said to me, so I'm, you'd have to check me on the specifics. But essentially, Deloitte had been publishing these climate slash economic studies that are projecting out 100 years into the future. Right. And they're saying, Oh, if the climate changes at this rate, then we're going to have population collapse 50 or hundred years from now. So we need to use that, this extrapolation to inform present policy action. And of course the present, present policy action is like, you know, destroy the farms, um, implement bug you know, feed people the bugs, like all this crazy shit we've heard coming out of the WEF. Deloitte is basically publishing research that that justifies it. And man, if that is not just absolutely insane, like to talk about not being humble in the face of uncertainty, the idea, the hubris that we could look out into the future 100 years and have a high enough resolution picture of what will happen that we can inform present day action um it's an inversion as you said of that entire process of uh can you know trial and error what did you call continuous conjecture and criticism right it's an inversion yeah. of that whole process and saying no here's a to totalizing piece of knowledge around which we're going to build present policy action yeah and um and always in service of the greater good, which is that this ephemeral entity, right? This, the greater good mm. doesn't exist. It's just a, a notion. Mm. And it's, it's almost like a deity in some ways in this, yeah, this utilit it, it, utilitarianism paradigm. Yeah. It, it appears in many settings, you know, there's this absolutely dreadful corporate governance idea that uh, is, is very much like, or associated with the WEF called stakeholder governance. Mm -hmm. Previously, the notion was that, uh, you know, the, the sort of um, Adam Smith kind of idea of how, what corporations did is that they acted to maximize the, the value of the shareholder equity. Uh, they were shareholder value maximizers. Mm -hmm. And the reason, Smith's great insight was the reason that that was okay was that as long as you ensured competition and applied your antitrust law, you would have a situation where all the other stakeholders were optimally served by that arrangement as corporations competed with one another. The customer would be served because without a customer, the shareholder had no value. Mm -hmm. The supply chain would be served and so on. And this is so so the other stakeholders 
are being looked after optimally, are able to assert all their preferences and rights in the system in an efficient way. That was the Adam Smith proposition, and it was it's pretty much right. Mm-hmm. But along comes Schwab and Co., and they say, no, but we must do a corporate triple bottom line or a, you know, whatnot. We must uh, not only take into account the, sh- the shareholders, we must look at the other stakeholders. And what is absent in the whole thing? What is nebulous about it? There's no trade-off between these. There's no system of trading off mm-hmm. environment or labor or supplier chain mm-hmm. or customers or mm-hmm. um, social, civic or anything. There's no system of trade-off proposed. So you meant to have the multiple bottom line, but what's, what's, a, what's a man to do? What's the director on a board meant to do when he's faced with something with which apparently helps the measure on the one part of the scorecard and harms a measure on the other? No solution is offered. So in it, just on its face, before you even get to looking at what they're trying to measure, mm-hmm. it falls flat. It's a right. bad idea, intrinsically bad idea. It fails at its own axioms. We shouldn't be even trying it without that thing there. It shows you how, yeah, I, I do a lot of the time believe that these people are just, a lot of them are just fundamentally stupid, that they don't spot that problem in the system before they implement it. Or they're evil, that they've got some other, some ulterior motive and they're going to pull a blind, pull a fast one over everybody else. I can't believe for a minute that a person of above average intellect would propose such a system, a stakeholder, a stakeholder governance system, and simply forget that you need a system of trade-offs between the different scorecards being measured. That right. to me strikes me as implausible. And I can only conclude that the person who's advocating such a system is either evil or stupid, but at least one of the two, maybe both. Yes. Well, that, it's funny. I often find myself trying to figure out which... <laughs> which it is right because you we see high levels of incompetence inside of government and you don't necessarily know if they actually believe the things they're saying or if it's just evil right um but this this greater good deity of utilitarianism it's often invoked right it's often invoked i mean this is you go back to marxism right from each according to their ability to each according to their need, right? That's just one yes. beautiful little poetic yes. line that sums up the greater good, but it's totally unworkable. Like that doesn't make any fucking sense. You can't implement that. You end up just uh, yeah. giving all of the power to whoever arbitrates that decision ultimately, which is yeah. the state. And what happens, hundreds of millions of dead, you know, mass starvation, all, all the horrors of, of communism. And this, I think it's like, you could call it almost this ephemeral entity which constantly demands more sacrifice yet is never satisfied with any amount of sacrifice. You're never going to attain the greater good. It's again, just one of these blank checks against yeah. which, you know, the state can draw whatever they want. So, um, and then your point on virtue ethics is interesting. I'd never, I never understood that actually as the, in, the opposite of utilitarianism, but, it took me back to our earlier discussion on the importance of religions because aren't religions often conveying the normative structures across time that are built around virtue ethics, right? That's what is correct. The moral yeah. of the stories. hundred <laughs> percent. In fact, there's a nice little game to play to demolish utilitarianism. 
and it, it it's using one of the classroom examples um but but then carrying it one step further do you want to, you want to just have a quick go at that let's do it we got time okay so the idea is that uh, a fellow walks into a doctor's rooms you know he's just there for his annual checkup he's in good health but he part of his good health is because he goes to the doctor every year to check for a checkup and uh in the waiting room, there's five very sickly looking people in there before him, and he has to wait for them to clear through and so on. He gets to the doctor's office and he says, You know, um, does he have my checkup? Doctor says, Ah, that's such bad luck. He says, Why? He says, Well, you know that you've, you've heard that we've adopted a utilitarian healthcare system. And the last five people here, the one guy had a dodgy liver, he's going to die doesn't get a replacement. The other guy's got a dodgy heart. He's going to die if he doesn't replace it and so on. And you're healthy. Heart, liver, and so on, all healthy. So I'm going to have to put you down because you can save those other five people. And in a utilitarian system, you know, a, a naive utilitarian system, that's a defendable proposition. There's the healthy person who can save the other five people's lives um and so we have a net gain of four under this utility measure right. of lives you know lives saved or whatever um and you so yeah what's what's the problem with that of course it it uh from any any normal human being would look at that with horror the idea that this this could happen and that's the point right that the measure is wrong Society would break down if you did that. Mm -hmm. Lives saved is not a legitimate measure under any any decision construct. You need to include what you do to the fabric of society where everybody becomes too scared to go to the doctor mm -hmm. or where everybody's walking around in terror that the, that the lives saved utilitarian police are about to descend upon them and right. uh, put them down for their organs. Right. Where do you find where do you find uh, organ trades in massively centralized policy polities like China? Hmm. I mean, uh, if you haven't gone down that rabbit hole, I would actually say to you, don't, because the Chinese organ trade is one of the most disgusting things I've ever surveyed. I don't know why it's not spoken about more in in international media. Well, I have a few guesses because they're all trying to centralize and they don't want to paint centralists with too bad a brush. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so, so what happens is you end up saying, ah, okay, it doesn't comport with the values of society, so we're going to rule that one out. But then what happens is utilitarianism, after you've applied that little technique often enough, and you, you keep on shifting the endpoints of your utilitarian objectives and it collapses back into a utilitarian structure. Sorry, into a virtue structure. Mm -hmm. It's um, ultimately, if you allow the utilitarian system to respond in terms of its measured endpoints to societal pressure in some way, it will evolve back to uh, you will so in other words, you, you need to now include in your utilitarian outcome your vision of the greater good mm -hmm. that that value because if you don't correspond with people's uh, virtues, 
if if you if people are horrified by the the outcome that you've gotten to then you need to take into account that horror you need to say right. look people won't go to the doctor and that's going to kill even more people you know so under our utilitarian measure of life saved if we include the second order of effect on people not going to the doctor mm -hmm. then this is a bad policy so we're going to adjust for that and we include that and we include and then another one comes along and another and another and you end up in a world where you've collapsed it back to a virtue structure there is no other plausible structure utilitarianism mm -hmm. is the domain of cretins the domain of cretins you said yeah 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 it man it, it reminded me of the the cobra problem i don't know if you've ever heard of this one uh it's perhaps an apocryphal tale i'm not sure but there was a ruler that they had a pro, you know cobra problem somewhere in the world i think this was in india perhaps and so the ruler put out a a bounty you know basically some amount of money rewarded for every dead cobra turned in and you know what happened well people started breeding cobras right so mm. they could kill them and turn them in so um this idea yeah, that yeah. human intervention always carries with it the risk of unintended consequences is like such a recurrent lesson yet it never seemed we never seemed to maintain it for more than a few generations yeah um, yeah very frustrating yeah so the, so the market solution is that you that people become cobra catchers when I mean, you've got one under your house you hire that cobra catcher to come and get that one. Yes, you know? right. And exactly. that's that's as far as the market goes. Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a great example. I mean, it, it, you know, the world of economics and microeconomics abounds with such examples. There's that super free economics book that has a lot of them in it. Um, uh, but uh, yeah. And then so, so yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say a little a little touch on Malthusianism, which is in many yeah. ways a fusion of. Um, uh, the the uh, the ep ep epistemological basis we started speaking right at the beginning, and the um, the notion of greater good and utilitarianism creeping mm -hmm. in. It's this idea that you run out of stuff if you keep on growing the number of human beings mm -hmm. on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, so it's 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 wrong fundamentally because what it does is it fails to take into account the creation of future knowledge. Mm -hmm. And what it tends to do, this is a creepy thing about it, is it becomes self-fulfilling because the observation, oh, the observation is, look, when humans are left to their own devices, they breed like rabbits. Mm -hmm. So we have to constrain their freedoms. We have to constrain the, the resources that they're utilizing mm -hmm. so that there's a greater cost to reproduction and a greater cost to consumption. And then we'll stop the earth from running out of food or titanium mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be, or oxygen or water. Um, that's, that's how Malthusianism goes. And if it, if it takes that action of inhibiting freedom, mm -hmm. of centralized, which need, requires a centralized system, then what it does is cut off knowledge growth. Mm -hmm. So that the prediction becomes self-fulfilling. And it's that self-fulfilling nature of Malthusianism that makes it such a dangerous idea. Mm. And it's rampant. 
these guys go, we're running out of CO2-free air. Mm-hmm. We are running out of nitrogen-free soil or some running out of water, running out of topsoil, you know, you name it. Mm-hmm. And we've got to st- we've got to slow down or stop, the, the, prevent the utilization, throttle the utilization of this and that and this commodity. But it ignores the tendency of humans, when left to their own devices, to solve the problem as the pressure emerges. Mm-hmm. And it's such an important one because it animates this whole the 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 CO two crisis you know, net, net zero climate crisis story. And it uh, animates the farming crisis, this, which is one of the strangest ones. At least they pretended to have a model with CO2. And it is, I agree with you, it's completely batshit crazy. Those, mm-hmm. those models are absurd. You know, what they're mm-hmm. purporting to model, this, the complexity they're purporting to master is ridiculous that they can predict hundreds of years out what's going to happen. It's just silly. Mm-hmm. Right. But, when it came to the nitrogen problem, that came out of nowhere and they didn't even bother building a model or explaining why it's a problem. There's just suddenly a nitrogen crisis mm-hmm. and you've got to stop using fertilizers in Sri Lanka or the Netherlands. It's bizarre. They, I think they had just realized, look, these guys are really dumb. Maybe we should just skip the model on this one. Because, <laughs> I mean, a feature of these crises is they only exist in models, right? Yes. yes. Uh, they're yeah. always telling you about the forecast problem, not the current right. problem. Right. The predicted problem. And this one, they didn't have a predicted problem. It's never been explained what the problem is with if you keep on using nitrogen, if there's, if it keeps on, if there's nitrogen in soils. Because this is what happens even in nature. Nitrogen gets fixed in soils. It's, it's kind of essential to plants' growth. Right. It's essential to all life on earth. Nitrogen fixation, you know, yes, nitrogen yes. fixing. Yes. But um, this has suddenly become a problem. They want to take that out of the equation. And it's devastating. We saw what happened in Sri Lanka. They banned fertilizer, uh, um, agricultural productivity fell off a cliff. There was widespread riots. The government was unseated. The WEF had to delete the supportive. Uh, comments and uh, uh, praise that they'd heaped on the president who'd implemented these policies from their website. All a big embarrassment and off we went. It was a little microcosm for what's going to happen, I believe, in the rest of the world. Yes. Uh, I'm reminded of the Kissinger quote, right? Who controls the food supply controls the people. Who controls the energy can control whole continents who controls money can control the world. Um, yeah. I don't think it's any coincidence that we've seen massive disruptions in food and energy and a massive printing of money like this. When you can't uh, maybe observe the motivations directly, you know, we can just mm. observe the outcomes and infer the motivations. I think Carl Young said something like that. And um mm. Yeah, you know, it's just it's not a coincidence, right? It's not a coincidence. I one of the things that struck me as you're you're talking there about Malthusianism is that that idea of the self fulfilling prophecy. You know, inflate. This is kind of a, a tangent, but I'll I'll try to bring it back around. Inflation has somewhat of a similar dynamic, actually. That 
once it is generally expected that a central bank will keep debasing a currency, right? There comes a psychological inflection point where people say, wow, this thing's going to keep getting debased. I better sell the dollars that I have and buy something that's not going to be printed, you know, food or furniture, whatever the thing is. And it's that inflection point that actually triggers the hyperinflation, right? It's not it's the central bank creating the expectation, but it's when people actually, you hit that uh, whatever watershed moment or tipping point of expectations that the dollar is going to continue to decline, that people start to sell the dollars for stuff and actually make it decline. So there's this self-fulfilling prophecy aspect to it. And I guess this gets back to the importance of theory, right? Or the importance of framing, as you were saying early on, um, that we can determine how we see the world really by what lens we're looking at it through. And if you're looking at the world through the lens of Malthusianism, well, you can actually create that. If you're looking at the world through the lens of inflation, right? We need inflation for a healthy economy. Well, you can actually create hyperinflation. So, I mean, this is where, you know, obviously the other way I think about this is, um, there's a book on this called uh, The Ultimate Resource, where he's basically making the point that human time is the, the most scarce economic input, right? That we're basically, that's what the economy is, is we're figuring out how to best employ our time to satisfy the most wants. And so the most essential economic input is human time itself. And it is free markets, right? As we're describing decentralized free markets, that make the best use of human time towards the, the production of wealth, at least the, the, the solving of problems. And so therefore free market economics would be the best way around Malthusianism as you're describing, right? Once we feel the pressure, we respond, we adapt, we innovate, we, we work around it. And so the whole Malthusian perspective, it's kind of like this denial of not only history of human innovation and and whatnot, but this denial of the self-organization we observe everywhere in nature, right? We see, you know, there's not like a, a when, bird, what, when the starlings fly in a coordinated pattern, there's not like one tyrant starling telling them all how to fly. It's they're all individually following their own rule sets and they create this complex emergent whole. Um, obviously if, you know, if birds are capable of that, then humans are as well. We don't need to be coerced into the right outcomes. People just need to be left alone, right? People need to mind their own business and we need to preserve life, liberty, and property and let humans self-organize. Um, so yeah. hundred percent. I, I'm, uh, I'm with you on that entirely. And it's, it's, a uh, you know, People say to me, but there's a limit, Nick, you know, um, at some point you'd have, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we can support if it's not a 8 billion people might not be too many. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's a hundred billion, but at some point you're going to get to the point where we're shoulder to shoulder and 10 stories high. <laughs> and at that point, you know, surely Malthusianism is correct. <laughs> but the point of this is that a long time before that point is reached, the amount of intellectual energy plowed into the problem of colonizing Mars 
or building space stations or doing something really fun that we haven't thought of yet mm -hmm. um, will be such that we'll do it. That's yeah. the nature of the evolutionary process under conditions of freedom. It's the nature of human ingenuity, of curiosity, of the creative process. Beautifully said. Um, I think that's probably a good place to put a button on it for today. Um, good. Yeah, and it's been we, a great conversation. Got, Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and we'll have you on for round two because there's more on this outline we need to get through. Um, yeah, sure. I'd love that. Let me know. Hey, could you please let my audience know where they could find out more about you or your work? Sure. Uh, the best place is uh, www.pandata.org. Our social media handle is the same pretty much everywhere, at pandata19. So it's always in, in the website and the social media handle, it's pandata, simply because the organization named Panda was already taken everywhere. <laughs> um, so pandata19 and pandata.org. And you can find us also on Substack. Uh, go for it there. Hopefully, I'll be unbanned from Twitter with uh, Elon Musk's recent actions. I'm waiting to get the 10 p.m. email uh, because it's been a year and a half since I said something that offended the censorious gods of utilitarian utopia at Twitter. But um, we'll see. I'm, I'm not holding my breath. Well, we will uh, be looking for looking out for your return to Twitter. Uh, Nick, man, hell of a conversation. Really appreciate you doing it. That was great fun, Rob. See you next time.